Well, uh, I'm going to cut to the chase right now. You're all that came this morning. You're expecting Pastor Brett to be the speaker, and uh, now you got me. And uh, actually, a few weeks ago, Pastor Brett actually invited me. He invited me uh, to be the speaker. And so I don't have Pastor Brett locked in his office wrapped in duct tape so I can speak. Uh, so, and I'll tell you, I know I don't have the gift of preaching like Pastor Brett. If I had the gift of preaching, I'd be doing this a long time ago. But I don't, but I trust you'll stay with me. Uh, both, both Pastor Brett and I have the same objective, and that's to preach Jesus. Matter of fact, when I was growing up, I grew up in a Baptist church. There was a sign at the back of the pulpit. It was taped. And it was from John 12, 21, and it said, Sir, we would see Jesus. So if I'm not preaching Jesus this morning, then I'm blowing a lot of hot air. You know, if anyone comes to this pulpit's not preaching Jesus, same thing. Matter of fact, if you're not preaching Jesus, you could be sending someone to a Christless eternity. So preach Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's what I want to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the 21st chapter of Matthew, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses. And this particular passage of Scripture comes the very, concerns a very familiar account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's what we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. And I think many people overlook this important event, as we, especially as we approach Good Friday and uh, Resurrection Sunday. I don't like Easter. I call it Resurrection Sunday. But this was a pivotal moment in Christ's ministry because Jesus was actually proclaiming himself as the King, the Messiah, the Son of David. Matter of fact, in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. So he was coming and saying, I am the king. You know, even the, even, even the, even the Pharisees, this is back in Luke 19, they told Jesus, would you please rebuke your disciples for proclaiming you as the king, the Lord who was to come? You know what Jesus said? Even if they keep quiet, what's going to happen? The stones will cry out. So Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, accepting the acclaim of the people as their Messiah King. And they were expecting a king right away, weren't they? But it didn't turn out that way. They were expecting their king to act in a certain way, and it didn't, as we will find out later. Now, all four Gospels uh, give an account of Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem. But I'm going to deal primarily with Matthew 21. But I'm also going to reference the other, other three Gospels because they fill in some of the details that uh, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't include. So with that in mind, let me read the first 13 verses of Matthew 21. I'll read out of the NASB version. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus, then Jesus went, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, Untie them and bring them to me. If, any, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place to fill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. 
And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he set on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowd going ahead of them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. That's the portion of Matthew 21. So let me pray real quickly and we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. May the words that are spoken in this passage of Scripture and be spoken as I, as I speak through them. May this be blessed time for all of us in this building. In Christ's name, amen. Well, before I begin this really important passage of Scripture, I want to touch on a few background information that I think will help you understand this passage of Scripture better. First of all, this is Passover week in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was filled with a whole lot of people. Now, Jerusalem at that time had about 50,000 people, but the historian Josephus says at that time of Passover week, there could have been over a million people in Jerusalem at, the, at that time, so it was really a beehive of activity. And, there, um, and, and many of the people brought their own animals, you know, a lamb or a dove for sacrifice, but many had to buy their animals in Jerusalem some outside the temple and sometimes inside the temple. And of course, money changers were needed because they brought their own currency, Roman currency or pagan currency, and they had to have the temple currency in order to buy the animals. And so guess what was needed? The money changers. And what did, what did money changers often do? Extort the people, charge an arbitrary rate of, of, of currency exchange. And so they were making a lot of money so it's no wonder Jesus overturned the tables and drove them out saying, you know, you made this a den of robbers, my house of prayer a den of robbers. So that's the background there. But also remember that Jesus was just one week away from his crucifixion. And this was something not even the disciples were fully aware of, even though Jesus told them. Matter of fact, turn back to Matthew chapter 20 and look at verses 18 and 19. where he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. You know, in, Luke chapter, in, Luke, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 44, 34, it says, The disciples didn't understand any of this. This meaning was hidden from them. And they didn't know what he was talking about. So in other words, his death and resurrection just didn't make sense to them. It just went right over their heads. I can say that because look at uh, verse, uh, verses 20 and 21. What happened there? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. What was she saying here? She was thinking the kingdom was going to come right away. And I want my two sons, James and John, to be on seats of power. I want James to be the Secretary of State and I'd like John to be the Vice President. Okay. 
or vice versa. I don't care as long as number two and number three. But look at verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But were they saying, hey, I want two. I want in on a two. I want to be on the important seats in your kingdom. When you set it up, when you come down from the Mount of Olives and set up your kingdom, we want the same positions as they have. But what did Jesus say in verse uh, 22? He said this, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? What was he telling them? You don't know what's ahead. You know what's going to happen to me. That's been hidden from you. If you did know, you may not have been asking those questions. But what did Jesus say in verse 23? My cup you shall drink. In other words, it's coming to you someday too. James and John's and all you disciples down here. The cup that I drink, you're going to be drinking in the future. But right now, he said, that's not my job to tell you which is going to sit on the left and on the right. That's the Father's. It's not mine. But you know what my job is? All you disciples out there, look at verses 25 through 28. You know, you, you, you're like the Gentiles. You want to rule. But whoever is among you must... But, who, but in verse 26... But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be what? Your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. You see, the Son of Man came to seek and to serve. Jesus Christ came to serve first. And he's asking the disciples, this is what I want you to do too. I want you to serve just like me, and I want you to serve it in humility and compassion. Another thing we need to know is although... Excuse me. I also need to know that although many people were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, as he entered Jerusalem, there were many in the city who didn't know who he was. Because mostly Jesus traveled in the regions of Galilee. He hit a lot of smaller cities and towns. And I think he's only in Jerusalem one other time at the beginning of his ministry. So a lot of people, all these millions, if there were, if there were a million people, a lot of them didn't even know who Jesus was. There was still speculation, as there is today, about exactly who Jesus is. So that's a little background on this passage. Let's begin, let's dig right into it. So we have here in verse 1 of Matthew 21, Jesus leaves Bethpage. That's a small village on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. The other gospel have, have him in Bethany too. He stayed there a while. Matter of fact, in Bethany is where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And in verse 2, he tells the disciples... To get a young donkey, a colt, as this will be his mode of transportation into the city. Now, Matthew's account has a mare, the mother of the young colt. And that's the only gospel that mentions this. But probably the mother, the mare, was there to kind of calm the colt down. Don't mothers do that? My mom did that a lot. She calmed me down. You know, mostly she said, if you don't calm down, I'm going to tell your dad. But... Mothers calm down, don't they? Now, verse 3 tells the disciples that if anyone says to you, Well, you need the donkey, tell them the Lord has sent you. Now, obviously, because of the Lord's omniscience, he knew exactly where that donkey was located. And by identifying himself as the Lord, would convey to the owner of the donkey that it was Messiah who needed the donkey. 
You know, actually in Luke chapter 19, verse 32, the owner, it, it's, it records that the owner came to the disciple and says, why are you untying that colt? That's mine. Why are you untying it? And what did the disciples say? The disciples said to the owner, the Lord needs it. And right away, that owner gave the donkey to the disciples. You know why? Because they said the Lord needs it. Now, we, we bypass that little verse there, a little, little bit here, but you've got to remember, I think the owner knew exactly that it was Messiah that needed it, the Messiah King. Um, you know, by making such a request, Jesus was asserting his claim to be the Messiah, the King. And with all kings back there in ancient law, any time a king requested something of his subjects, they were compelled to give it to him. So that's why he gave that call right away to the disciples when the disciples said, the king, the Lord, needs it. You know. Now may I ask you this. Who is your king? What if the, what if the king asked you to do something? The king of king and Lord of the lords. You sit back and do nothing? You resist? No. In the Bible, in the scripture, you're going to find the king asks us to do a lot of things. And we need to do it because he is our king. So, the owner, the owner of the donkey was aware of who Jesus was and complied. The disciples did as they were instructed. That's in verse 6. Brought the donkey back, placed her clothes over the donkey in verse 7 to form a saddle for Jesus to ride on. And so, from the western slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus begins his descent, his slow descent, down to Jerusalem, riding on a lowly donkey. And he asked, why a donkey? Well, I think he asked for a donkey for two reasons. One, a donkey was a, trans was a poor man's transportation back then. I think when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to give birth to the Messiah, I think Mary rode on a donkey. And this was not the normal conveyance you would expect from a king arriving in the city. But that is exactly what Jesus was to ride on, in fact, was expected to ride on for two reasons. One, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah 4 and 5, which is, you can read right there. And he used to enter Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. You know, this is one of the many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled as the Messiah. Matter of fact, I read that there are, over, there are at least 300 direct and indirect references in the, in the Old Testament that are fulfilled, messianic prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think of it, the odds of just 48 of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person to be right at one in 10, followed by 150 zeros. That's the odds of just 48 of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man. And that was Jesus Christ, because he was the true Messiah, the Son of God. And he fulfilled every one of those prophecies. And secondly, by riding on a donkey, Jesus was coming not as a conquering king like Alexander the Great, or riding in a golden chariot like an Egyptian pharaoh. No, Jesus is coming in peace to offer salvation to people, isn't he? He is gentle and riding on a lowly donkey. Jesus will not be the political, the political Messiah, the conquering Messiah that the Jewish, Jewish people were expecting. He has come to bring salvation and to rule in people's hearts, to bring the good news of eternal life in him, not to kick the Romans out. The Lord is humble and compassionate and giving, 
and riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Think of it. You know, that's a lesson, I think, for us as Christians today. You know, we're here to change hearts, aren't we? We're here to bring the good news of salvation to those around us. We're not here to change this godless culture politically or militarily or whatever. You know, we should all vote and be involved to an extent. But our calling, our primary mission, is to change hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Once we change hearts, the culture will change, won't it? But we change hearts first before we do that. Now, I think we also need to be reminded of something else. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, not to rule. He came willingly in obedience to the Father's will to be our sin offering. You know, in Matthew 26, 39, Jesus prays to the Father and asks, Father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not I as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus came down the slope of the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey to be the perfect sacrificial lamb for us, the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb that would be sacrificed for us. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 19, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Think of it. Our sin offering. You know, the thing about love is this. You know, it's God's love for sinners like you and like me, isn't it? Because couldn't Jesus have called ten legions of angels? He could have avoided Jerusalem altogether. He could have even entered Jerusalem covertly and left the same way and be done with it. But no, Jesus came to do the Father's will. I like what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And his Son did the Father's will and became our sin offering to be beaten and scourged and ridiculed and crucified and to die for us. Let me ask you this. Is there any greater love than that? The Lord give his life for us sinners. There's something else I think we need to be reminded of on Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming back, isn't he? He's coming back. He's coming back as a conquering king, and he's not riding on a donkey. What's he riding on? He's riding on a horse, a white horse. It says, in, let me read Revelation 19, 11 through 16, where it reads, And Jesus, and I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flaming fire, and his head are many diadems, and his name written on him, which no one, no one, which one, no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. I think that's us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with, so with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule with them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written on it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What am I saying here? In his first coming, the Lord came in peace and righteousness to offer salvation to everyone that comes in the name of the Lord. But when he comes back the second time, he's coming back with vengeance and judgment to set up his kingdom in peace and righteousness. We need to be aware of this. 
his first advent, his first coming, he's offering salvation to anyone that comes to him. You know, there's a wide gap between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, isn't there? 2,000 years counting. Wow. But I want you to be assured he is coming back. He is coming back to rule at his second coming. It says in the scriptures in Zechariah 14.4 that when he comes back, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. And from there, he's going to enter Jerusalem, down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley like he came on Palm Sunday. And he's going to enter the temple, and he's going to set up his kingdom and his throne forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's a blessing. What a blessing that is. I think of Acts chapter 1. I love that passage in Acts chapter 1. You know, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's been on, on the earth 40 days after his resurrection. And he's on the top of the Mount of Olives, all the disciples around him. And suddenly, what does he do? Jesus goes up into heaven. And all the disciples are sitting there looking up there, you know, watching him go. And what happens? Two men in white are standing right next to him. Those are angels. And what do they say to the disciples? Oh, you men of Galilee, why stand there gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who you saw go up into heaven will come again in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. Like he's coming again. I know the first order of business on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. We're going to be taken away, but we're coming back too. We're coming back with the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. That's why I say, and I'll say it again and again, and I said the first hour, how important it is to accept Jesus' offer of salvation right now. This is your opportunity while his arms are open to accept any and all who will come to him in simple faith. Let me ask you this. Now, we think everybody, you know, sometimes people think everybody in this church is saved. Everybody in this church has a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I don't believe that's true at all. There could be somebody right here that the Holy Spirit's convicting you of your sin and your need to repent, your need to come forward and get saved, you know. God's offer of salvation is right now. Matter of fact, after the service, I'm going to be right up front. If anybody wants to talk, anybody wants to talk about the Lord, anybody wants to know how to get the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, you come and see me after this service. Don't walk away. The Holy Spirit's moving in your heart. Louis Zamperini, that uh, guy wrote a book about Unbroken and the movie Unbroken. He was a prisoner of war in World War II by the Japanese, and they, they just cruel to him during that time he was there. And he got out was living in Los Angeles, and he became an alcoholic. And all he could think about was going back to Japan and killing that guard that was so cruel to him. But then in 1949, the Billy Graham crusade came to Los Angeles. And his wife, Cynthia, urged Louie to go to that crusade. He finally relented, and then he went to the crusade. And he got so angry at the message, when the, when the invitation was given, he got up and he left, and he walked out. He said, I'll never go back there again. A couple of days later, his wife Cynthia still kept begging him. And I think they made a condition or a pact for him to go there. He, she had to do something for him. So he went anyway. He sat in that pew, angry again. When the invitation was given, he was going to get up. He got up, and he was going across the aisle. And Billy Graham said, no one leaves here. You can leave when I'm preaching. But when I give the invitation, I don't want anybody to leave. So Louis was right in that aisle, and he stopped, and he turned around, and he went forward, and he got saved. And when he, when he went home that night, he took all his liquor bottles and threw them down the drain. 
And then he wrote a letter to that prison guard that treated him so cruelly and said, I forgive you and love you in Jesus Christ. You see what the Lord can do to you? He can change your heart. You become a new creation. That's, that's available right now, today. So let's get back to this passage, verse 8. Verse 8. You see, um, the procession begins. The Lord's riding on a young donkey, descending down the slope of the Mount of Olives, and the people are spreading their coats and palm branches in front of Jesus. It's a symbol of homage, of praise, of submission to their coming king. Who were these people anyway? I was thinking about that the other day. Who were these people anyway? Well, obviously his disciples. Obviously there were people from Galilee who knew of Jesus and his miracles. There were probably some people there that were healed by Jesus, the blind and the lame. Uh, others around Bethany. And probably a few others who just wanted to get on the action, not quite sure who Jesus was. So you can picture the throngs of people on each side of the road. That's in verse 9. And what were they doing? They were singing and shouting, Hosanna to the highest. Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, Hosanna, you know what that means? That means to save now, to grant salvation. It's taken from the 118th Psalm. I think in verse 25 where it says, O Lord, do say we beseech you, do send prosperity. You see, Psalm 118 is a psalm about praise and petition to the Lord. It's a part of the, what's called the halal. That's where you get the word hallelujah, halal, Yahweh, praise to the Lord. And there's the six psalms of ascent from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 that people chanted, you know, at the Passover festival and other religious festivals, the halal. Psalm 118 to Psalm 118. They were chanting that as the Lord was coming down from the Mount of Olives. So in their petition and praise to Jesus while he was coming down Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the people essentially were saying, Lord, save us and save us now. Bring prosperity now. Deliver us now. Kick the Romans out. We don't want them anyway. They're, not, they're just a bunch of oppressors. So any wonder... Why Jesus wept over the sea of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, where he says, if only, if only you had known this day what would bring you peace, but it's been hidden from your eyes. And it's right there, and you don't receive and see it. And what's, you know what's coming? Destruction is coming. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. That's why Jesus wept. If only, if only you had known so with all this praise and adulation of Jesus as their coming king, their Messiah, we know what happened a few days later, don't we? He's hanging on a cross like a common criminal between two thieves. Matthew 27, 39 records that people walking by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. Now think of it. Were some of these people that were hurling insults at him the same people that were shouting Hosanna to him on Palm Sunday? I kind of think so. I kind of think so. Mocking Roman soldiers. We all know the story, don't we? Casting lots for his clothes. Only a few people at the foot of the cross. Only just one disciple mentioned that's John who was comforting Jesus' mother and three other women. Where were the disciples? Well, it says in John 19, most of them were locked in a room fearing their own arrest. So much for the son of David, the Messiah. What a letdown Jesus was. How many people thought that? What a letdown. We wanted a king, and what do we get? We got a guy on a cross. 
Just a few days earlier, they were proclaiming him as their Messiah, the one who is to come, and look where he is now. What a disappointment this Jesus was to us. Let me ask you this. You ever felt Jesus let you down? You ever been disappointed with the Lord? You earnestly asked the Lord for something, you never got it. You wanted healing, you wanted that job, you wanted this, you wanted that, and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed, and the Lord never answered that prayer. You know, in some respects, it's almost like we make a contract with God. We do that, I've done it before. We make a contract with God saying, Lord, if I do this, this, and this, then you gotta do that, this, this, and that, you know. And if it doesn't happen, we say, now listen, Lord, this was in the contract. It was section A, subsection 2B. You gotta do this. You gotta do this. It's in the contract. Lord, Lord, you let me down. You see, the people in Jesus' day wanted a Messiah that that would do their bidding, kick the Romans out, bring prosperity and peace, just like it was during the time of David. But instead, they got a Jesus nailed to a Roman cross. But you see this, and this is important. God planned long-term. The people planned short-term, right? God had a long-term plan. The people had a short-term plan. Aren't we like that? That's why there's really times we need to learn that God's timing is not our timing. His way of doing things is often much different than our way of doing things. Thank goodness for that, too. Know what Jesus does to disciples after. Turn to this. I love this passage. Turn, look what Jesus does to disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through 27. Because there, after his resurrection, he gathers his disciples together, and he sits down and he starts talking to them. And in verse 25, he says to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. That's the Old Testament. Now, do you not think that that was a time when the light came on for the disciples? That's when they started seeing the big picture. Oh, now I know. You're not going to set up the kingdom right now. You're actually going to set up a kingdom that's going to be more glorious than we could ever imagine. But not in my lifetime. Now I see. You came to change hearts at your first advent, your first coming, not to conquer the Romans and bring peace in our lifetime. You came not to set up a kingdom, but a future kingdom. You know, that took some time for the disciples. It took some time for them to understand this completely, and it took some time. It also took the indwelling with the Holy Spirit to give them a little more insight. For all the things that Jesus said about himself, including the suffering and persecution that would come, not not just to Jesus, but for them as well. But they were learning just what it meant to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, just as we are learning in our day and age. You know, Peter would understand this truth, but he would write just a few years later in 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What Peter's saying, you may be in your trials right now and you may be distressed, but don't think short-term, think long-term. 
That's why you know what kind of faith we need when God doesn't act or respond the way we want him to, just like the people back there. It's not contract faith. God doesn't do it. God doesn't work that way. It fails every time. To me, it's a kind of faith that stays steady and true for the long term, no matter the circumstances and disappointment in life. Because God's timing is not our timing. You know, what we have in our time are blinders on that obscure our vision, and we can't see past it. What does God want us to do? Trust in me. I know the future, and I plan long term, not short term. Now, the final three verses, that's verses 10 through 13 in this passage, concerns the question of who this Jesus is. Now, these are the curious onlookers, no doubt, the city dwellers, the people just didn't know who Jesus was. Certainly a few others, like the Pharisees, who just viewed Jesus as the enemy. And I also include the money changers who just wanted Jesus to go away and leave him alone so they could keep their money. Because even though the city was stirred up by Jesus entering Jerusalem, so many people, and all the people are shouting, he's a prophet, and their hosannas, the coming of the Lord, they really didn't know who he was. That's why they said, who is this Jesus? Some would say, oh, he's a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Other people are saying, I'm not quite sure who he is. Even though the people have welcomed Jesus in messianic terms, they still do not recognize him as the Son of God. You know, people have been asking that for centuries, haven't they? Who is this Jesus? You know, if you ask the common person on the street, who is Jesus? You're going to get a variety of answers, won't you? Yeah, I think he was a mythological character like Robin Hood or King Arthur. Not sure he existed. Or he was a real person, but kind of crazy in his thinking. Or he's a great moral teacher. We ought to follow him. Good teacher. Or he was a role model, way shower for others to emulate, like the Christian scientists believe. Or he was an angel sent by God. I think he was an angel. Or he was a God, but less than God, the Father. Kind of a God, lowercase g. Or some might say, I think he was a prophet. A lot of different ideas of who Jesus is. But then you open your Bible, and what does the Scripture say about Jesus? That's what's important. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells, Colossians 2.9. He is the radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Isaiah 9.6. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, John 8.58. I like what J. Oswald Sanders writes about Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not very God of very God, there is no such thing as Christianity, and we who worship him are idolaters. Conversely, if he is God, if he is God, then those who maintain he was an exceptionally good man, even the best of men, are blasphemers. More serious still, if he is not Jehovah God, he's not even good. He himself is a blasphemer. But the Lord Jesus Christ did exist before he became a man as the infant and eternal God. The Christians believe in his deities derived from Scripture, and this one doctrine unlocks the whole book. Isn't that right? Jesus is very God of very God. And that's who he is, and that's what the Scripture says about him. Now, I said I wouldn't go past 1140, and I'm not going to do that. But if I go, past, if I go to 1141, please forgive me. 
But uh, what, can we what can we draw from this message on Palm Sunday that I just shared with you? What lessons, what applications? There's a number of ones. I only got three. The first is that for all the acclaim, all the hosannas that the people bestowed on Jesus as the coming Messiah King, as he descended down the slope of the Mount of Olives, his mission in coming to Jerusalem was to die. He, in a sense, was dead man walking. He came to make full atonement for our sins, to settle the wages of sin forever. And he gave up his life willingly for those whom he loved, and that's you and me, that he loved us as sinners. I like what Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what does that mean to you? Do you accept that love that Jesus offers through his death? That's amazing. That's why I think, as we look at Palm Sunday, we look at the great processions down the slope of the Mount of Olives, but remember, he came to die, not to rule, and he came to die for us. And if you haven't accepted that free offer of salvation, you do it right now. Secondly, we learned today that God's timing is not our timing. The people wanted a king, and they wanted a king right now. Same applies for us. What God wants when our prayers are not answered is to trust him for what we don't know or can't see, to trust in his ultimate goodness, a goodness that exists outside of the time that we are trapped in short term, to trust in a goodness in his goodness that time is not caught up with yet. You see, God is good, and he's good all the time, even when the fog rolls in. You know, Thomas Dorsey he lost his wife and the baby when his wife was giving birth. Lost them both. And he said to the Lord, I don't give a plug nickel about you. I don't care anything about you at all for what you did. And he blamed God for it. But then a little while later, it seemed the Holy Spirit came over Thomas Dorsey and comforted him with a comfort that only God can give. Thomas Dorsey later was able to sit down at the piano and write song, the song that we still sing today. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on through the light, to the light. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Lord can do that. We don't understand. We don't understand what's going on. We can know this, the Lord has our hand, doesn't he? And he's taken us through the night and through the storm. The third is the story of Palm Sunday to me is a story of redemption. When Christ rose from the dead on the third day and walked this earth for 40 days, there were many who saw the risen Lord, 500, Paul says. And when he went to heaven and disciples went about proclaiming the good news of the risen Christ, I want to ask you this, how many people do you think were saved? How many people do you think became believers who once thought he was a mere man? Were there any of those that hurled insults at him? Were there any ones that saw a disappointment in the Lord Jesus Christ when he was hanging on a cross? And then later, through the proclamation of the gospel, they became saved. That's the story of redemption, isn't it? Though God came to save any and all who would accept him as their Lord and Savior. And that's some of you right here in this audience. 
right here, that came to Jesus Christ, that lived a life that was not pleasing unto the Lord, that you may have ridiculed Jesus, or you didn't know who Jesus was, or you didn't even care, but then the Lord took care of you and saved you. See, that's the story of redemption, and that's redemption for all of us. Isn't that right? For all of us. That's why there's millions of people out there right now who ridicule Jesus, who don't believe in him, that are disappointed in him. They don't care a bit about him. You know, there's redemption for all of these people, isn't there? That's why the good news of Jesus Christ still needs to be told, still needs to be told by all of us. So let's, this, let's go out this week and do it. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the remembrance of Palm Sunday, but actually what it really means is that you came to die for us. Even though the people wanted a king, the Lord said, not now. King's coming, but not now. So Lord, we trust in you. We thank you for the blessings we have this morning. Now we, may we go out today and to the rest of this week and be, uh, be witnesses to you of your grace and love. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Please stand.